Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're taking a listen back to one of our fondest interviews with the TV presenter Kirsty Altop. You'll most likely know Kirsty for presenting numerous property shows, including Love It or List It and Location, Location, Location. As well as being a property guru, Kirsty has a passion for craft and a knack for making a house feel like a home, with her hand-embroidered pillows and decorative tablecloths. But despite her love for all things warm and cosy, her early life was overshadowed by much darker themes. At the age of 17, her life turned upside down with the devastating news of her mother's cancer diagnosis. Kirsty recalls how her youthful desires for freedom and passing her driving test came crumbling down as she soon found herself taking on the role of mum to her younger siblings, who were both still under the age of 10 at the time. Talking about driving and your parallel parking, that sort of goes back to one of the worst days it must have been in your life when you went for your driving test and just before you went for the test your mother told me that she found a lump didn't she yeah so I wanted to drive so badly it was all I wanted was to to have my own car to be able to drive around to be in control it was the two most dominant things I remember wanting a baby and wanting to drive and I didn't care at all about my test couldn't have given a monkey's she then had the operation and that was a lumpectomy um, and then something occurred a few months later which meant that she had to have complete mastectomy, hysterectomy, everything. Kirsty admits that her relationship with her mother wasn't picture perfect. She shares how her mother was quite obsessed by being thin and Kirsty then felt very anxious about the way she looked and the mother always wanted her to have the perfect dress. And I think that carried on all the way through her life. She just has this anxiety about getting right. She now dresses beautifully. Although Kirsty also detested going to boarding school, she went to quite a lot 
and her parents moved her around whenever it became too unbearable. But in the end, she went to 10 different schools. Perhaps though, the cruelest part of her relationship was her mother having cancer and living in the shadow of that impending death for a very long time, you know, through quite a lot of her late childhood through to adulthood and having to be the mother, really, for the whole family. You know, first of all, the doctors told her that she only had three months to live, but she actually carried on living for years, and that's extraordinary, really. What did you remember most, do you think, Rachel, about her life? I remember going to see her in Devon in her absolutely immaculate, amazing house with beautiful cushions and carpets and curtains, really neat, and she made us a lovely lunch. It was the sort of perfect domestic goddess scene. And I think what I took from it is that she loves being a homemaker because as a child, she had to take on that role. She wanted to make everything right for her siblings. She wanted to sort of create this perfect backdrop. And now that's what she wants to do for the people that she's helping to find houses with location, location, location. And it's what she wants to do when she's showing people how to do crafts for the perfect Christmas. And I think it is really about comfort and domesticity. Mm. And that comes from her childhood, which was quite traumatised. And unstable. I think that when she talks about moving around and moving homes and schools and, and also that sense of wanting to feel she'd done something. So she was very dyslexic, she told us. And, and that's partly, I think, probably why she moved schools, because it was so tricky for her and um, why she didn't then go on to university. And she's incredibly clever and articulate and funny, but she finds it difficult, she says, to put things down on paper. So she's absolutely natural for TV because she knows how to express herself so well. And she's also always standing up for people, which means picking fights with people as well. So she's quite often having Twitter spats, but it's almost always when she feels somebody's being bullied or looked down on. I think it's because she did have quite a tough time at school and she's never going to let anyone be bullied. She always wants to be the one protecting them. And that sense that she wanted to pass her driving test so she could drive her siblings around and, and look after them. So I think there is that sense of nurturing and looking after people that she has that doesn't always come across because she's also fighting on behalf of people. Um, and I think in that way, I think when people meet her, she's a very warm personality, isn't she? And, and the fact that she wanted us to have a proper lunch and she was sort of looking after us all day to make sure everything was all right and then we got to the station at the right time and we weren't going to miss the train and... And, and I think there is that sense of mothering the whole time. She's almost like the perfect big sister. Mm. Yes, I think that is that sense, isn't it? That she wants everyone to have a good time and to enjoy themselves. And, and I think her relationship with her mother was probably very warm, but also quite complicated because you know, her mother wanted to be the mother and she, she knew in some way, I think, from her late teens onwards that she was looking after her mother whenever her mother was ill and probably also supporting her father, who must have been pretty anxious at the time. I found a sort of diary the other day, you know how you start diaries, and it was a suggestion for my sister's daily routine, which I had submitted to my mother. <laughs> Aged what? Age 17. And how old was your sister? Uh, uh, seven. <laughs> so, I mean, so I think that my and poor mother... was involved in the daily Well, routine? it was just like she should do this and then do this and do this and go to bed at this time and do this much reading and everything. And so I think my poor mother came out of hospital, had the radiotherapy, and discovered she was living in a house with a sort of bossy monster. She then decided it'd be a good idea for me to go to school in Oxford. And I think that's because she was worried. I was at home all the time. I was far more interested in my sisters than I was in my social life. I was overly domestic. I think she was terrified, you know, and, and I just was that sort of person who 
why would I have been sitting writing out what my <laughs> sister should do every day? It's an amazing role reversal, though. So you're, um, you're starting to look after your yes, parents. Yes, you start really. to look after your parent, and that probably never changes. And I think there was probably a real wrangle between me and my mum about that. There was this sort of sense of black comedy as well about her mother's death and funeral and, you know, how the mother kept a coffin in the attic for years and years and then how difficult it was to get a special permit to bury her mother in the garden and and she buried the mother didn't she right next to their pony that i think was called benji and and the idea that they were buried next to each other the fact that the family obviously adored their pets as much as their mother in some ways and it was pouring with rain wasn't it and that coffin kept floating up they couldn't actually get it to sink so the whole thing was very british in some ways and there's a very dark humor to it but it was almost as if she'd spent so long thinking about her mother's death that when it happened, I think they were almost too nervous, the whole family, too anxious, and it, it came across in almost this very funny comedy scene that, that was almost like something out of a British film. What we'd all forgotten is that when you uh, bury someone, you rest the coffin, and you can't put it on the muddy ground next to the coffin. You rest it on sort of strips of wood suspended over the coffin. Again, that's usually done by the professionals. Yes. Um, so my brothers-in-law and my sister's boyfriend were running across the field back to the garage to try and find some two-by-fours to put across the grave. I mean, you couldn't write it. Mm. And then... Oh, we, all in the rain. All in the pouring rain and the whole thing. And then, so then we buried my mum. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, presenter Kirsty Allsop tells us her story of how the hardship she faced in her early years has helped her to give to others what she has always yearned for herself, a perfect home. We met Kirsty in 2020 at her home in Devon. Her children play in the background of her beautiful country house and Kirsty reflects on what it was about homemaking that inspired her. It goes very deep. My mum was a brilliant decorator and she was fantastically adept at sewing, at making things, painting things. When I was small, she was a picture framer and she did these beautiful mounts on the pictures. And then she became a decorator. Um, after she first had cancer, she couldn't um, lean over to do the framing. Um, so she stopped it and became a decorator and was incredibly good at it. But um, she, she wasn't a particularly keen cook. Um, and she was sort of, it's it's really funny, the, the, the sort of very drilled down sort of napkins, tablecloths, liking ironing, liking packing and unpacking kind of micro element of my hominess doesn't come from my mum. I don't know where that comes from. And as a child, I used to really enjoy that sort of preparation for a journey and packing things and when I went away to school that sort of whole trunk thing and it really mattered to me that it was all sort of absolutely perfect. So did you then do your own trunk for school? I I completely did my own and, and I don't want to make my mum sound neglectful she wasn't at all but she did always think I was quite strange in that respect and years later, we had an one of the most huge rows we ever had was about a tablecloth. And I was nearly 30 by then, earning really quite a lot of money with the property and then with the telly, totally independent. And we were in Italy and we went to this hotel and there was a tablecloth 
And it was absolutely beautiful. And it was £100, which is a lot of money. It was, even then, it was quite a lot of money. I mean, it was more money then, if you see what I mean. Uh, but, but she was furious. Absolutely furious. She said, can't buy that. And I said, Mum, I'm completely independent. Who would spend that on a tablecloth? And I, I said, I really like it. I still got it. And, um, and she just couldn't get her head around it. But when I was 21 and I was looking for my first flat, I was going to shops and buying tea towels like two and putting them in a drawer and waiting till I had my flat. And I'm not sure now that that's normal. No. And when you're at school, did that difference make you stand out? And yes. Was that difficult for you? Uh, I did stand out. And I think if my close girlfriends, I've still got quite a few close girlfriends from my time at Beedell's. Um, and they would say that I arrived in skirts with a pink bike. I wasn't particularly pink, you know, but I did have this very girly pink bike and I had this corduroy skirt and these jumpers from Benetton, which had collars and these argyle socks all coordinated. So there'd be a green jumper and a green argyle sock and the whole thing would, was in this trunk, which was immaculate. And what was everyone else wearing? 501s, DMs and grandfather shirts. And I did look like a freak. And uh, and it's uh, what I find it very strange that I didn't want to conform. But I think I was, if if I'm honest, I was really, really, I adored my mum, absolutely adored her. I hung off her every word. And she would say, no, darling, the trousers don't suit you. And um, and I, I just didn't have them. Did you and your mum, were you and your mum quite similar? Did you look alike in those we days? We look very alike. She's very, 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 or she was very, very, very thin. Um, but we do look alike. And scarily, as I get older, I see more and more and more. Not scarily, but uh, my mum was beautiful. But uh, she had the blue eyes and the dark hair. It's strange. I think now as I'm, I get older, I think I'm more like my father in character. Um than my mum but definitely I set great store by my mother's opinion and it really mattered to me for many 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 years in fact obviously until she died what she thought about things mm. and was she quite critical or was she always very positive uh god that's such a uh, it, I think she probably in her own way she would say, oh, definitely not critical, positive. But I, I think that she was, yes, we're, as a family, I think we are quite critical and judgmental. And, um, uh, and we certainly, behind closed doors, would, would have conversations which I, which I don't think are particularly edifying. Um, and I find that, I do find that in myself. And um, the phrase judgment is a, you know, it's a very, it's a modern phrase that we all use now. It wasn't used then. But yes, I think mum was, do you know what? We're all really, really observant as a family. That is what my father did. He was in the art world. It was his job to see things in furniture and pictures and recognise things. And we are just quite an observant family. And we notice things in in people's dress and in interiors and behaviour. And we do, we are quite critical. So if you walk downstairs in 
to go out somewhere and you were wearing something, would your mother say that looks wonderful or would she say, oh, darling, do you think she'd she would, If shoes? she didn't like things, she would uh, certainly say. There was no no question of always saying that looked nice. She didn't hold with that. Um, but to say not to wear trousers, they don't suit you, that's uh, quite yes, tough. That, yes, I suppose that is quite tough, but that was just how it was mm-hmm. and that was how it was. Mm-hmm. You know, she was she she would always say, and, I st- and I've said it myself, darling, if you're going to a fancy dress party, wear what suits, not what you think is cool or cool fancy <laughs> dress. Or it was always, it doesn't matter what it says on the invitation, wear what suits you. Mm. So, you know, going to a fancy dress party as Mr. Blobby would not <laughs> be her idea. Was she very worried about her weight? I mean, was she a fattest? She was, she, she was a, a massive fattest. And uh, in fact, it's, a, it's, it's across the board in, in my family. And uh, um, my mother was, yes, she came from a, a long line of people very concerned about their weight. Um, and it was a constant thing with her and and literally when she was very very ill she'd ring up and and say you know I've just had some nuts today that's all I've had to eat proudly and you'd think mum you're having chemotherapy or you know she she was very concerned about her weight till the day she died when you were eight you were sent away to boarding school that must have been really hard wasn't it uh, it was a nightmare and I really weirdly I had a chat literally last week in my dad's garden with my dad about it and we were talking about boarding school and he said but your mum enjoyed it so much and your aunt his sister enjoyed it so much and you know it was a famously nice and cozy school and and I said I know dad I know but I really 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 hated it Mm. I hated it I can still remember the homesickness was so overwhelming It, it was absolutely crippling the final straw was when there was a girl called honor who whose rabbit died and i went with her to find the rabbit it disappeared out of its hutch because some people took their pets to this boarding school and um uh and i went with honor to find the rabbit and eventually we found this body of this little white rabbit and we'd been doing metaphors and similes at school and i put my arm around sobbing honor and said Oh dear, Anna, but don't cry for spilt milk. And she went back in and told everyone I described her rabbit as spilt milk, and no one spoke to me. I was put into quarantine, oh. not quarantine. Um, what's it? Coventry. Called? Coventry. Coventry. Yes. Um, and that must have been devastating. I mean, can you imagine? Because I was only trying to be nice, but obviously I completely got it wrong. So they <laughs> just didn't to speak to you. No. to you. I don't know. I mean, it was probably only a few days, but it, I mean, it felt like mm. you know a lifetime at the time. And I remember thinking, this just isn't going to pan out weirdly my brothers-in-law both went to the same boarding school aged eight and they both loved it I've had conversations with them about it and I've had to sort of agree not to to talk to them about it is that because you loved your home life so much or I just missed everything I missed everything that my food my bed my my surroundings my mum my dad my siblings and how long did it take them to well, realise this and to get you back I think again. They re- it, I was I was out of there within a term, and um, I was very lucky because my mother fell pregnant with my sister, and then obviously she was going to have a baby at home because I think obviously the plan had been that I would go to boarding school, then my brother would go to boarding school, and then um, you know less childcare and everything. You know, but once my sister was on my way, that all, all changed. So my mum said, you know, 
you can you can come back home. And you I, must I, have been I, desperate for a baby as well. Oh, oh, oh my God! <laughs> I mean, that was just the best thing. The birth of my sister Sophie was literally the best thing. It was just like having a. You know, I never particularly wanted a dog. We had dogs. I wasn't particularly interested in them. <laughs> I had a series of, of 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 pets that I frankly neglected, if I'm honest. Um, uh, and they all died prematurely. <laughs> but oh my this is a real life doll. It was a real life doll. It was just the best. You could push her around. You could dress her. You could undress her. You could put her in your pram and put your party coat on and march up and down the drive, which I did a lot. Yeah. My mother was amazing, though. It, you know, it, she said she's not happy. I'm taking her away, in, and it was very disapproved of what my mum did. And someone said to me once, "Oh, you know, you move schools all the time. It wasn't a good idea." And yes, I do think my mother probably at some point should have said, "Actually, darling, I think sticking this one out might be a good idea." But that that first time she took me away was the best thing she ever did. I felt more supported, more understood, more listened to than anything else that ever happened in my life. So how many schools did you go to? Ten. I mean, that were is... you bullied at all of them? No, absolutely not. Okay, no. So some of them were good. No, so I was not, but no, absolutely not. And also, I I now look back and I think I was strange and I didn't want to conform. And while you shouldn't ever blame a child for that. I can see that the thing that now gives me goosebumps about school is the idea of grouping children by age. Right. So you school, obviously, we know that um, there were how it worked is that there were uh, the great mass of people who lived at home and help their parents in the house and help their parents in their businesses. And then at a certain age were apprenticed or took over from a family member at their trade. And then when uh, we moved from an agrarian ag- agricultural society in the main into the industrial revolution came and people moved into cities and initially the children were in the factories and in the mills. And the factory owners and the factory mills, if they were good to set up schools, um, it, it was the privilege of the rich to be educated. You know, schools like Eton and Winchester were set up and age 13, instead of being apprenticed, you went into school and you had education. So it, it was a sort of industrial revolution, Victorian construct to take children and group them together by age and teach them to read. And, and we're, still, we're still doing that. We, we still haven't come up with a viable system to say, well, this child is... Uh, you know, uh, uh, is this is its de- developmental stage, and this child is this developmental stage, and because we have this system, there is huge stigma in not reaching X developmental stage at X point. You know, my birthday is the thirty first of August. I went to school um, when I was way too young. I was in the wrong year for the first um, until I was ten, and then I was moved down a year, um, uh, but. I, I was the eldest child with not great social skills, didn't have a huge amount of older cousins or, you know, older people, children with whom to develop my social skills. I was absolutely king of the hill at home. And then suddenly, bam, hmm. I was at school. Of course I wasn't going to like it because no, I wasn't in charge for a start. And you were a mini adult in some ways, I was you? Yes. I mean, we've already established I was a <laughs> control freak stroke perfectionist. <laughs> so... So you, you're put into an environment with other children who won't do what you tell them to do. So of course they're going to tell you to jump in a lake. 
So were there other examples of bullying in other schools apart from so, the no, rabbit? Um, the, it was just, yes, it was general sort of... I never had major, major, major physical, you know, bullying that, of the kind that... It was just generally... And I remember one time, one school I was bullied at, and the teacher decided it was a good idea to sit me in the middle of the room and have everyone around and, and, and it, it just so that everyone got a chance to explain why. I was so irritating. No, <laughs> yes. no, and, and I'm sure they. Were, I'm sure I was irritating. I, I what did it feel like? It sitting... didn't, It didn't feel. It's not one of my happiest memories. Um, um, it, but do you think that's why you have such close friends now that you are very no, aware I wanting feel, to? No, I feel I've I've I feel I'm not good at friendship. I I I get very into my work or what's going on at home. The awful thing is that still to this day. Arning and Apkin might come higher on my list and chatting on the phone. If I'm doing something and someone rings, I'm like, I really want to talk to that person, genuinely. But I also do really want to get on with Arning this Napkin or whatever it is. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Kirsty Allsop. With you as well, was the dyslexia a factor that, uh, did that make you more vulnerable to bullying? I think, uh, I think I didn't realise until much later in life the full extent of my dyslexia. I just knew that I wasn't, that I could understand things but I wasn't able to translate onto paper what I could understand. I think, and and I sort of gave up. And now I look and think, you know what, I had that ability and I just, uh, it's a, I, I could read, I couldn't read and then I could read and then I always read. But the writing was always a problem. And, and now even I will look, I will send an email and I almost never send an email that hasn't got at least three or four missing words. Did it give you an advantage in some ways, do you think, being dyslexic? Oh, I wouldn't. I would. So you've got mean, very good spatial awareness. I mean, that, I have, that is. So, and you must have that for your I, decorating so, and for your houses. And when you see you in location, location, you're looking at houses in a way that other people aren't, aren't you? And that must have some sort of resonance with I never, being dyslexic. I never say, 
you know, being a, a woman, be a British woman of a certain age, saying I'm really good at something does not come naturally. Um, I am spectacularly good at spatial awareness. I can I can park a car. I can see if I can get the car into the space and I can get it absolutely into the space. Talking about driving and your parallel parking, that sort of goes back to one of the worst days it must have been in your life when you went for your driving test. And just before you went for the test, your mother My told mom, me that she yes. found a lump, didn't she? Yes. So she, I didn't know that... My grandmother's initial cancer had been breast cancer. I don't know how I'd missed that. I knew that my grandmother had died of, of a cancer when my mother was 26, I suppose. I was about a bit later than that. I was about three or four. I remember my grandmother, but not particularly. Anyway, she had died of cancer and she'd had cancer on and off for quite a while. And that was very much a part of my mother's uh, sort of late teens, early childhood early 20s and um I uh so I didn't know that my mother was nervous about it but anyway she was and she found a lamp and she came in to tell me and she said tomorrow dad and I are going to the cedar house which was our house in the country because I might not be going for a while I just want to pick up some stuff and see the house and she said I'm really sorry um uh, I won't be here for your driving test. And they left early. And I, when I woke up, there were two pillows, absolutely beautiful, embroidered square pillows, which my mum had bought me for a consolation present because she was informed by my driving instructor that I was going to fail my driving <laughs> test. And one of the first calls she made when she came round from her operation, which then happened on the Saturday, was to ring the driving instructor and say, you promised me she'd fail. She's now driving my other three children around London and I am in hospital. <laughs> so you passed. That was so I passed. Amazing. I passed and it was awful because I didn't care. Right. So I wanted to drive so badly. It was all I wanted was to have, again, the control free, mm. to have my own car, to be able to drive around, to be in control. I wanted to drive from, it was the two most dominant things I remember, wanting a baby and wanting to drive. Mm. And uh, and I didn't care at all about my test. Didn't couldn't have given a monkey's. And then um, she uh, she then uh, had the operation, and that was a lumpectomy. Um, and then something occurred a few months later, which uh, meant that she had to have complete. Uh, mastectomy hysterectomy everything and so um and then chemotherapy so so the period between me turning 17 in the august so this was in the january that this happened so that whole year uh was sort of and i think looking back on it the fear was very 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 intense because in those days if you were 41 and you got breast cancer that was not good it just wasn't, mm. it, it wasn't, your your chances were not good. Um, and we knew that, everybody knew that. And also cancer was much more the big C then than it is now. It was, it was terrifying. There were these films on telly about it. You know, uh, there were sort of f- films about people. Well, do you remember Terms of Endearment? Mm. And and there were, fil- you know, and, and it was just, there was a lot of, 
stuff about it you know if you got cancer you died mm-hmm. and did I, you have to shield your siblings as well then because they were um, much younger weren't they we didn't tell my siblings so natasha was two and sophie was seven and then we didn't tell them and then sophie uh the school rang up and said that sophie had bit someone right through their jumper and drawn blood and could mum come and pick her up because that wasn't acceptable behavior and she was being suspended for the day and mum went and picked her up and said what on earth happened and she said uh well, they were playing this game in the playground and you got cancer. It was like a chase game. Mm. And they would say, you know, run up and touch the person and say, you got cancer. We didn't know that Sophie knew about mum's cancer because we kept it as a secret. But uh, she, she obviously knew. She'd heard this word. Right. She knew it. Anyway, the girl who ran up to her and said, you've got cancer, unfortunately got <laughs> more than she bargained for. Gosh. Anyway, so mum, classic mum, was, didn't make it home with my sister. She spun around, marched straight back to the school and said, if you're idiotic enough to allow the children to play these games in the playground, it's not surprising Sophie bit mm. someone. She was very good at defending um, her children in that way. She was really great like that. But you must have had to look after your younger I, siblings no, a lot, I, yes, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes. Uh, I did. My, I, my, we just come to London. We'd only just moved to London. My parents had only recently moved to London because I was brought up that my parents spent... My dad was in London for the main during the week. Then he'd come home at the weekends and my mum would go to London to join him. Uh, and I had I had been at Beedells. I'd left. Um, I was at a, a day school in London. I'd had my first term. I was in my second term. And uh, we, uh, we, we had a new housekeeper who my mother did most of the childcare. We had a housekeeper. She left. She just arrived and she said, well, my mum got ill. She said, I wasn't up for this. I didn't sign up for this and left. And my dad was in shock, I think. He went to work every day and came home every day and functioned. But I think he was in complete shock. So did you take over then? So, and when so everyone else was sort of partying or drinking or smoking, were you at home looking after I them? was at home, but it's. I now know that I probably would have been anyway. So... <laughs> When I was younger, I used to say, well, you know, I didn't take drugs because my mum got very ill when I was 17 and that's why. Actually, that's bollocks. (laughs) I I now know that. And I I wouldn't ever want to put my overweening sensibleness on my mum's shoulders. (laughs) I have definitely got less sensible as I've got older. Um, And uh, and when I was 17, I was. I just was. I was, you know, I, I wasn't a rule breaker. I was not conventional but I wasn't a rule breaker. And so probably, yes, I did look after my sisters. Yes, I was super responsible. I did, I went to the nursery that my sister attended and I said, look, you've got to give her a morning place, not an afternoon place because I go to school in the mornings and I can't look after her. Um, and But my mum got out of hospital quite soon. And I think I recently... <laughs> Like, so awful. I found a sort of diary the other day. You know how you start diaries. And it was a suggestion for my sister's daily routine, which I had submitted to my mum. <laughs> Aged what? <laughs> Age 17. And how old was your sister? Uh, uh, seven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I think that my and poor what mother... was involved in the daily Well, routine? it was just like she should do this and then do this and do this and go to bed at this time and do this much reading and everything. And so I think my poor mother 
came out of hospital, had the radiotherapy and discovered she was living in a house with a sort of bossy monster. And uh, and she then decided it would be a good idea for me to go to school in Oxford. And I think that's because she was worried. I was at home all the time. I was far more interested in my sisters than I was in my social life. I was overly domestic. I think she was terrified, you know. And, and I just was that sort of person who... Why would I have been sitting writing out what my sister <laughs> should do every day? It's an amazing role reversal, though. So you're, um, you're starting to look after your yes, parents. Yes, you start really. to look after your parent, and that probably never changes. And I think there was probably a real wrangle between me and my mum about that. Um, and did you remember crying at all? Your father crying, or any of you I, actually being? No, I don't. Very emotional. My, Were you very British about it? I don't remember my father try, crying until the cat died. And then... So very British. Very British, yes. And so completely losing the plot when the cat died. What about you? Uh, I am uh, one of those people who will cry in the films or ads. But would you Um, cry for your mother when you were that age, do you think? uh, I remember once my mother had a test that was quite an important test because her cancer journey went on for a long time and there were real highs and lows and troughs and everything and there was one time when uh she got some good news which we were expecting to be very bad news and it was a friday and i came rushing home and at that time i lived in the basement of my parents house i'd left home had my own flat then my parents had bought this house which had a flat in the basement and i'd sold my flat and moved back in and i came home and mum had gone she'd gone to the country it was a friday and I rang her and I said, I can't believe you didn't wait to see me before you went. You know, I really wanted to see you. And she said, this is my news. This is my cancer. And when I had the telly and people started asking me about cancer, she did say, mum, she said, after I die, you can talk about the cancer as much as you want. I want you to raise awareness of it. I want people to understand it. I want it, you know, but until I die, you aren't to. And did she never raise it then? I was talking to my dad about this and he said when she was told she had three months to live, he reckons that one of the best things he did was ban the doctors from telling her that. She lived for another nine years. But having all sorts of treatments. But very odd for you as well, having to live for so long with the sense that your mother may die at any time. Yes, and she did use it. She, uh, <laughs> she, she completely used it. In what um, way? If you don't do the washing up. <laughs> no, not if you, but she rang me up. Darling, you've got to say daddy not to go on his, his painting course. Why, mum? Well, there's this one holiday. As you know, it could be our last holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and um, I was like, but mum, dad really loves his painting course. I know, but he can do his painting course next year. Um, and it, she she did. She there were there was quite a lot of last holidays and last Christmases. <laughs> and I wouldn't, you know dream and definitely for the last few years we I didn't book ahead and calculations were made about whether I would do things I would always check the holiday insurance to see if my mum was going to die you know what would happen could I cancel it so you must be on edge the whole time sort of fight or flight mode I think probably you were we were but you get used to it Mm. you you there was a definite fight or flight mode mode and I think that all of her children we all got 
if I if I'm completely honest, and I really hate saying things like this because I know if my mother were alive, and God forbid there's a heaven and she's listening to me, I am dead. I mean, <laughs> dead, dead, You're dead. Joining her. Yeah. <laughs> she's going to kill me. But but she, we didn't do our own thing to the extent that we perhaps should. Or maybe that's me. I don't know. I I can't necessarily speak for my siblings. In what way though? Well, I nobody wanted to be the one to to sort of sort of upset mum I mean we did all in our own ways do things that upset mum but there was a general I don't think the rebelling thing happened as much as it should have happened so just at that stage we all kind of they say that families lock into a certain age so when when things happen your your family is kind of set at the positions you were when that trauma happened and I definitely think that we didn't uh I don't know. My brother did. He travelled and went away a lot. Um, uh, but it wasn't... I was always nervous about it. Um, and and my mother was nervous, I think, herself. So there were certain things she probably... should. I, I remember once saying, why hadn't she clamped down on my sister about something? And she was like, oh, no, darling, I can't because of being ill. And I daren't. And, and did you, know, you feel that you needed to find a partner, have children, so she could have grandchildren. Was there a sense that she wanted you no. to speed everything up at all? She she, she was not a great one for grandchildren. Although, again, <laughs> if I'm saying that in public, I'm, I am, you know, if there's a heaven, it's not going to be much fun for me. That's all I can say. But, mm. but no, she absolutely adored her children, completely loved her children with a complete passion. But early on, she did say, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about grandchildren because, you know, I love my children, but they won't really be my children. And then, of course, when I was pregnant, I reminded her of that. I never said that. I never, <laughs> ever, ever said that. But to be honest, she wasn't. She wasn't the world's best grandmother. And now I totally understand why that was. She was very, very, very nervous. She loved her children with such a passion. And then her children had these things that they loved. And she was terrified. She was... She, you get to an age... Some people, when they age, they get more anxious. And she did get more anxious. And she found looking after her grandchildren very nerve-wracking that something would happen did it affect your approach to your career did it make you want to succeed more stand on your own two feet more did it affect your choice not to go to university um I didn't go to university because my mother thought if you didn't go to Oxford there wasn't any point in going to university she had a very very old-fashioned view on university and women in university and I have only come to realize that now so do you regret Um, that now no, it's the weirdest thing. I can't, I, I know I should, but I lived in Oxford with students in the year before I didn't go to university and I really hated it. I just hated it. Mm. I, I meant to stay with some friends of mine one time when I'd started work and they were all at university. Um, and I woke up earlier than everyone else because obviously I was used to waking up and going <laughs> to work and I tidied up the house and I threw away some dope because to me if you shake a matchbox and it doesn't rattle with matches it's empty and it goes in the bin I don't know that there's a you know (laughs) and um and I just I I I don't think I I just don't think I'd have particularly enjoyed it Mm. now I think I would love it because I'd I'd go for the sake of learning Mm. And you'd have hated the experience. Right? You wanted hated, your flat at 21. I wanted my you? flat. I wanted my flat. And had I gone to university, my room would have been 
Immaculate. Immaculate. <laughs> and with I'd have brought my own duvets and pillows. I'd have had a bedspread. <laughs> it would have had curtains. It would have been freakish. <laughs> and any man who had come home to my my room at university would have been really freaked out. Most of them were freaked out when they came home to my flat in their 20s. Never mind at university. I mean, can you imagine? You're at university, there's this house, it's got five people living in it, and there's this one room that... <laughs> it would have been really weird. And your first boyfriends, were they older than you then? Or there weren't were they? any. They weren't. I the... thought you went out with Dominic Cummings at one point. Is that true? Not allowed to say oh. that. <laughs> causes chaos um uh well, i'm not sure he'd have liked the lace pillows though would he <laughs> um that uh no the it, it was awful actually my romantic life in my 20s was just virtually non-existent and is that because you preferred folding napkins to no out it's because you just i wanted to get married and have babies so badly it was written all over me yeah. i mean literally written all over me. Did you discuss I'm, it on first dates? I'm, I must have had a sign above my head which said, you know, I want a baby, please marry me. <laughs> it was just awful, just awful. And I would, you know, someone would ask me on, uh, out on a date and I'd say, why don't you come around and I'll cook you shepherd's pie? <laughs> you know. <it's, laughs> Did you have baby names already? No, weirdly not. I wasn't, I, wa- I was quite, I... I was brought up in a, you know, nuclear family. I, I was very focused on a baby needed a dad. Although, weirdly, by the time I met Ben, I had definitely made my plan of having my baby by myself. So by the time I got into my 30s, the whole thing had been planned out. I was like, if I get to this date and I haven't met the right man, there was no... So question. what age were you going to have to be? Well, because of the breast cancer history in my family and because I fully understood about fertility and everything, I wasn't going to push it much past about 32. Right. And how are you going to find the sperm donor? I'd already asked a few people. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> I had and they said, so yes. identified yeah, they said yes. So I had, yes, yeah. And but how had you chosen them? Uh, by their niceness. Yeah. You know, I so just, not their so looks or their... No, or intelligence or... No, no. It was like someone who... Well, it's quite a thing to ask someone. So you basically... It's, you're starting with a small group. Um so it was, you know, people who were gay and 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 might want a child, or someone who was, uh, you know, had was committed to never getting married, uh, um, and something like that. But there were three of them, um, uh, and they'd all and said yes. They had all, all said yes. And yes. they all had to be disappointed. Uh, no, I don't think they were in least disappointed. I think they were absolutely <laughs> terrified when I asked, and when faced with that question, weren't capable of saying no. Had I actually got to that age and then asked them to follow through on their um, on the request, I'm not sure they would have jumped at it. So were they incredibly relieved when you <laughs> met Ben? I think probably yes. Whenever and you haven't any... actually got married, have you? Which... No, we haven't. Got married. And is that on because you were married well, so and babies? So, so so he said, I think the first time we met or the second time we met, but literally. Probably second or third date, he said, I'm never marrying again, by the way. And what did you feel when he said I that? I thought that was very forward, to be honest. <laughs> very forward. Um, uh, I, and I was a bit like, well, you know, this is our second or whatever. You know, I was just like, I thought it was odd. Do you think he picked up you were looking for marriage and baby? Rachel, he did, yes. Because everyone else had picked that up. Um, but did you get a ring or anything then? I did. I had a spectacular, most beautiful ring, which I managed to lose. But I've got loads of rings. I've got this ring, which I got for 10 years together, which is he uh, designed, which is the two of us. It represents the two of us. So, no, he's 
absolutely the most committed person on the planet. I've never had any doubts. And I knew because I, because I knew how much he loved his children that he would never have children with someone he wasn't. The fact that he was prepared to plan a child with me was the biggest indication of his commitment by far, beyond anything else. But did you ever plan your wedding? Were you one of those sort of people? Yes, not? as a child, I would draw wedding dresses in school, but only the dress. And maybe I would think about bridesmaids and and how my sisters would make nice bridesmaids, but I was never a kind of wedding obsessive. And by the time I met Ben, I had been to enough weddings and seen enough disasters and known enough failed marriages to know that I really hated weddings. I devet- My mother had a pathological loathing of weddings. And funerals, didn't she? And funerals, yes. Yep. Uh, really, she didn't like, uh, she didn't like displays of, she was much more unconventional than I think I probably ever realised. She didn't like sort of those kind of things. She, did, she didn't like insincerity. She didn't like people turning up to celebrate the wedding of a couple they barely knew. She never went to the weddings of children of her friends unless she felt she knew that child really well. A couple of really glamorous mm. weddings she was invited to. And I was like, Mum? <laughs> nope, I don't know that person's child. Not but she go. also planned her own funeral, didn't she? She planned her own funeral down to the last dot and the last comma. And she was buried in the garden at home. Uh, uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Um... Uh, Did she tell you what she wanted to happen? Yes. So, how, how so she... well, we knew there were very definite plans. And she was getting iller and iller. And she made Dad measure the Volvo to see if her her coffin would fit in it. <laughs> and she, she got could... her own coffin? Yes. So it was Chris. So my sister went into the attic to get the Christmas decorations and came down swearing blue murder and furious with my mother. Obviously upset, but furious because the coffin was in the attic it was this wicker coffin and, and my and my mother hadn't warned my sister so and she by, just bought it yeah she ordered it online and she we you know we knew she was dying obviously but it was a shock for my sister to go up the ladder into the attic and find that coffin just sitting there horrible and she came down and got very cross with my mom and my mom said i'm so sorry darling completely of course it was up there <laughs> um and then uh she had the whole dog in the garden and it was then that very, very, very wet Christmas. Um, and so it filled with water and it was like a sort of plunge pool. Um, so she had the whole dog she before had the whole she dog. died? Yes, the whole thing. Was it near the horse? Was that right? She wanted initially to be buried over Benji, the pony, but then I think there was a problem because there was just pony bones and it became clear that that was <laughs> And why Benji rather than any other uh, pony? Benji was a pony that we were all incredibly fond of and he lived for a very long time and we loved him. He was a small Shetland pony, almost like a house pet. And um, so she wasn't buried over Benji. She was buried near Benji. I was the one who had to ring up and get the various permissions. It turns out you don't need permission. As long as it's not near a water source, you can be buried anywhere you want. But it took ages because no one knows this. Mm. Um then she died during this extraordinary flood. So my my dad rang me on New Year's Day and said, I think mum is getting ill. So, so on Boxing Day, she came here, had lunch, sat in the dining room, able to sit up, then sat on the sofa and said, um, she said, you know, love, I'm really tired. Um, do you mind? Then I just said, no, I don't mind at all. And did you know exactly what she was talking yeah. about? totally knew what she was talking about 
And it was extraordinary because she managed to die at the time when we were all in the UK. None of us were missing out on... I mean, she literally died sort of extraordinarily conveniently. Do you and, think she almost held... Oh, God, yes. She held, held off. She completely held off. And the whole thing was very dark and I can describe it in a completely humorous way. And we, you know, we, could, we are all capable of doing that. And you, you could, I could write it up and it could be very, very funny. Um, it, it was just fantastically dark and British. And when you relay it, you can make it very funny. It, it, it wasn't much fun. You, you don't, I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I don't, I think there's a reason that we, that we hand over the bodies of people we love to people who are specialists in that field. So did you actually have to put it in the coffin? We did, yes. And it, and we mistimed it. Um, uh, so, uh, the coffin was being dressed with flowers. My, my father has lovely gardener and she was wanted my mother's coffin to look beautiful. So it came down from the attic. We put the flowers on it. But by the time we came to put my mum in it, or come to dress my mum in the clothes that, that we'd picked out, we couldn't get her into them. So then we had to choose something else. Um, and it was just, it was just awful, mm-hmm. you know. But we did, she was in the coffin. And then, uh, then we, uh, then, then, she stayed overnight in the house. And, and did then, you stay with her then? In the no, coffin? I went back to London to get her passport, which was in London, and to get huge amounts of lilies, which were... So we drove... I picked up all these lilies and I drove back... Still can't bear the smell of lilies. Drove back the next morning and my aunt and uncle came over. My aunt and my mother's cousin, who she was very close to, were both there when she died. And then, and then we... She was put on the tractor, on the trailer on the back of the tractor and driven up the garden. And uh, it was it was carnage because there was everyone was wearing their wellies. So everyone had their smart clothes on, but the mud was knee deep and mm. everyone had their wellies Was on. it still flooded the hole? It, it was still definitely water in the hole. And um, and then my, we're walking up behind my mum's coffin and I see my sister's then boyfriend and my brother-in-law running back in their wellies and their suits across the field. And I was like, what's going on? And Ben said, I told them. What are you talking about? Anyway, what we'd all forgotten is that when you uh, bury someone, you rest the coffin and you can't put it on the muddy ground next to the coffin. You rest it on sort of strips of wood suspended over the coffin. Again, that's usually done by the professionals. Yes. Um, So my brothers-in-law and my sister's boyfriend were running across the field back to the garage to try and find some two-by-fours to put across the grave. I mean, you couldn't write it. Mm. And then... All in the rain. All in the pouring rain and the whole thing. And then so then then we, we, we buried my mum exactly as she'd requested. And do you know what it was all about? It was about no fuss. Right. She didn't want to inconvenience anybody. And do you still go back to the garden and go and see your mother? No, I don't like going up there. So I now, since lockdown, I've obviously visited my father and sat in the garden with him um, and walked around the garden with him. And I'm coming much more now to appreciate my father's garden and his passion for it, much more than I ever did before. Um, I think I was jealous of the garden um, and I, w- I knew I sort of felt I wish he'd focus more on his grandchildren than he did on his garden. But now I completely get the passion for the garden. I understand it. Um, but I don't like going up to 
uh, I'm not a, I'm not a um, not a burial person. I want to be cremated, and I would like, God forbid, that anything happened to anyone in my family. I would. I'm. My father-in-law was cremated, and I hadn't really come across it before. But I think it's it's amazing. And where would you have your ashes scattered? Well. In about ten different places, <laughs> I, I I would have my I, I'd basically my poor family would be going, but I wouldn't leave instructions. I wouldn't leave any. I would I I would only I would leave no instructions except to say I'd like to be cremated. That's it. And then I would leave. You know, I I think everyone should write down and say do whatever you want, do what suits you, um, because I think that it is a little bit of a tyranny feeling that someone that you, someone has left these very strong instructions which you must mm. adhere to. Do you feel frightened that you might get it? No. it's a genetic no. absolutely thing, isn't not. It? I don't Your feel... Your sister's had a mastectomy. My sister has had a preventative mastectomy. And why didn't you want to do that? The honest answer to that is that I just don't... They've never found our gene. So they think there's a gene because my mother had it her cousin had it various other family members have had it so they think there's a gene but it's not one that is yet recognized and as yet we we don't know there's so many unknowns about cancer but i do think that that surgery is so major that there's a possibility that it could upset your equilibrium in other ways mm -hmm. i know that sounds so like sort of bad science but it is major surgery and I saw my sister go through it and in her case it went wrong and it had to be redone and something went wrong during the operation and it was really, really painful and traumatic and horrid for her. She is immensely glad she's done it. She really worried about it. She's pleased she's done it and I'm really happy for her that that was what she, that she was able to do it and the people at the Marsden wouldn't have done it unless they thought there was a very good reason for doing it. You don't get preventive mastectomies unless mm. the geneticists think that there's a good reason for mm. doing it. But in my case, I haven't done it. Also, I'm older. I'd had two children by the time it was a possibility. Um, you know, I'm much older now than I was when my mother first got ill. I don't... They know more now about breast density. I have the sort of type of breast which are less prone to breast cancer. Loads of different things. Um, but I don't worry about it. I don't worry about illness. I don't worry about death. I I don't know why. I think there might be something wrong with me. <laughs> but do you think it spurred you on, though, having your mother being ill that long? Did it change your life? Yes, do you think it, it absolutely did. There's no doubt about it that having something in your life where you are from an early age worrying about someone else is probably a positive. Uh, uh, you aren't... Teenagers, by their very nature, and people in their early 20s can be very self-centred and self-absorbed. And I think, for me, there was something really positive about that not being a possible, so much of a possibility. I'm not saying I wasn't a hellish teenager and quite tricky and difficult in loads of ways. But there comes a point when you have someone who is ill in your family where you have to focus on something else. And the, there were periods of time when my mother had her operations, when she she had periods. She was It turned out she was allergic to pre-meds and it caused the most terrible um, hallucinations. So there were a couple of times when she had very bad days mentally, 
which we later discovered were as a result of the her being allergic to morphine. Um, all of those things. And being in hospitals, seeing someone who's had... I mean, she had numerous procedures and operations. The number of sort of world events I saw in hospital with my mum. Mm. Not, not my... I don't think my life was significantly changed necessarily in the path I might have otherwise taken. It would be ridiculous to say that I would have been a sort of, you know explorer or climbed Everest or something if my mum didn't act fancy but you you have got something else to worry about. And do you think it also gives you a sort of sense of urgency because you know life could be short? Yes I think I think I judge risk differently and I think particularly during the Covid crisis I felt that I am able I know how many people die from cancer and I know how many people die from Covid and I know which is the greater and I know, I've always known there were risks in life. There there are risks that you will catch things. You know, uh, there are risks that something will shorten your life. And my mum was 66 when she died. So I'm afraid in our family, we've always had a thing of if you make 80 or 85 or 90, you're bloody lucky and that's really old bones. And, and that's not a particularly good thing to think like that but we do definitely think like that in our family um, what would you say now though to your 17 year old self when you first got the news about your mother would you say it's all going to be okay or um i uh i don't know what would re- have reassured my 17 year old self because uh i think if you'd said to my 17 year old self this is going to go on on and off on a sort of roller coaster but 20 odd years and you're never really going to know I think that that probably wouldn't have been wildly reassuring um I think that is one of the problems about cancer there's one of the really 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 difficult things about cancer is once you've had it once there are some cancers which the recovery rates are absolutely spectacular and you get it and they get rid of it and you never get it again. But once you've had cancer, there is always a specter there of it coming back and recovery rates from secondary cancers are lower, much lower than recovery rates from primary cancers. And my mum, extraordinarily enough, had two primary cancers. So she had two primary breast cancers, which is almost unheard of. Do you think it changed your character? I... I think that it probably, I don't know whether it changed my character. I think I I was pretty set on the path that I was on. But I think that it changed my outlook more than my character. I think it changed my outlook. I think it made me judge what what happiness is, uh, how to find happiness, what I truly, truly, truly passionately believe that you cannot find happiness without doing things for other people. I just, I don't think there's such a thing as that, that is, and I found it, I have found it a struggle during lockdown that, that not working and not communicating with other people, not thinking about other people, having huge amounts of time alone with my own thoughts. I think probably the fact that I never ever go a moment in silence is not necessarily healthy. So I cannot be in silence ever. So whether that's watching a movie or a podcast or an audiobook, I don't do, ever do silence. Mm. 
Um, and uh, so you have to keep busy. I have to. I have to keep busy. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Kirsty Allsop. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.